Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. I just want you to know you all sound wonderful this morning. You look great. We are so glad to have you here. And we trust that the Lord even now is meeting with you and speaking to you and preparing your hearts uh, to hear his word today, to be challenged and to be encouraged and to be uh, pushed forward in your relationship with him. I do want to remind you before we jump into the message, though, uh, we are still doing pepperoni rolls, and so we will be doing those again on Monday night over at Brooklyn Pizza, and uh, we had a great crew that was out last week that came to help us, and we need another great crew this week. If we have a, if we have a similar-sized crew to what we had last week, <clears throat> and we do the same amount of work, we will be done. We won't have to make any more pepperoni rolls, and we'll be finished and be able to move on to some other things. But we do want to remind you that we are preparing these pepperoni rolls uh, as a, a fundraiser for the church to help with missions and to, to help increase our ability to, to serve in, through that money. So uh, we hope that you'll join with us for that. Uh, one of the things that, that we noticed last week, uh, Sean Malone, who owns Brooklyn Pizza and has graciously opened his doors and has been helping us with this process because I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, <clears throat> but Sean, Sean mentioned to me, he'd walked out into the, the room and walked around. And he said, you know what the best thing about tonight is? It's not just that we're getting pepperoni rolls done. It's not the potential money we can make. It's all of the people who don't know each other sitting at a table saying, hey, I don't know that I've met you before. My name is so-and-so. Well, my name is so-and-so. I have come to the church. Well, I sit over here. Well, I sit over here. And the meeting and the interaction between the people is is of the greatest value. And again, we want to remind you, if you've never done this before, that's okay. We can show you how. It's not difficult. Um, so come and join us on Monday night. We'll be there uh, from 5.30 till we're done. And uh, the more of you we have, the faster we'll be able to finish it, which is great uh, for me. And then I don't have to come in with the staff on Tuesday and finish it up. So uh, please come join us. Seriously, it is a great time. And we would love to have you uh, over at Brooklyn Pizza Monday night, 5.30. And we will be churning out some pepperoni rolls. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now uh, to the word of the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your great love with which you continue to love us. We thank you that you are a God who hears us, Lord. That when we pray to you, when we do this, when we say these words, it's not just empty motions we're going through, but God, that you hear us, that you are listening to us, Lord, that you care about what concerns us and what's going on in our lives. You want to hear from us and you promise that you will move on our behalf. Lord, as we continue to consider prayer this morning, may we take the caution found in the story of Hezekiah and Isaiah. May we keep you forever on the throne of glory. We remem- may we remember that it is you that brings about all good things in our lives. May we praise you as the great God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So I got a question as we get started. Now, you may or may not be a sports fan. I am. Uh, but I've been, been thinking about this for actually quite some time now. Say you've got a basketball team. They're on the court, coming down to the final seconds. They're down by one point. And as the other team comes down the court to seal the game with a basket, someone makes an amazing defensive play and steals the ball and calls timeout. Player A steals the ball Great defensive play, stops the team from making a shot, calls timeout. They go to the bench, right? 
And the coach comes out, he sits in front of them, and he says, all right, this is what we're going to do, team. Sits in front of them with the whiteboard and draws an amazing play involving all of these intricate picks and motions and movements to confuse the other team to hopefully get someone open for that last-minute shot. Timeout's done. They break the huddle. They go back into the game. Five players head back onto the court. The rest of the team sits on the bench cheering them on. Player B, different player than player A, takes the ball out of bounds, smacks the ball, and the play goes into motion. And everybody starts moving, and player B looks, and he fakes it to another player, and then throws the ball into player C. Player C gets the ball, takes two dribbles towards the basket. The defense collapse, and he throws the ball to player D, who makes the game-winning basket. The game is over, and the good guys win. So here is my question for you. Who gets the glory? Who who is it that is responsible for the winning of the game? Who in all of them? There were four players, right? A, B, C, and D. That is four. And there was a coach. And unfortunately, there was some poor fool who probably set the pick that, that got the player D open. So that player E there. So you got all five players involved in, in that. Who, who gets the glory? Is it the player that gets the, the steal? Is that the player that, because he stopped him from making the, the, the ceiling basket? Is it the coach because he drew up this amazing play for the players to run? Is it the player who didn't throw the ball into the defense and got the ball where it needed to go? The player that made the assist or the player that made the basket? Well, let's, let's go a step further, right? Score is 92 to 91. That means there were some 45-plus baskets that were made throughout the course of the game. So do all of the people who scored some of those 95 points, do they not get any of the credit for what's going on? I mean, the truth is, if we really think about it in that context, there's enough glory to go around, isn't there? In truth, it's, it's no one. Of course, the player that made the basket at the end is the one that's going to get the adulation and be in the paper later. But the truth is... It was a team effort, and everybody should get some credit. And I'm sure everybody wants their share of the glory. But there are times, particularly in our relationship with God, where we deserve no credit at all. And I want to clarify, because there's something that drives me nuts in church circles, and that's when you do something good. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but we got a new Padawan learner this week, a new apprentice playing guitar, Miss Leona, uh, and, and she did a great job this morning. And I'm sure that there are some of you, that's fine, you can clap for her, that's great. She's my eventual replacement. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure that there were some of you this morning that once you saw her and her little cuteness up here playing, I don't mean to be belittling, but she's clearly, no offense, Kaylin, but the cutest member of the band today, right? And uh, so you get to be 1B today, no offense. But you see her up here, and listen, I know, I know what happens. I see it every time we bring someone new up here. There are some of you that as you're worshiping, part of what moves you is the fact that we have a young person up here doing it and you cannot take your eyes off this young girl who's just rocking it this morning, right? And so after the service, some of you undoubtedly are going to go to her and she's a little shy and she'll be a little embarrassed, but you're gonna be like, Leona, you did a great job this morning, as you should. And hopefully Leona will just say, thank you, I appreciate it. You know what drives me nuts, though, is in the church, what a lot of times we do is we're like, 
Oh, no. It's just God. Just God. Now, I'm not trying to be belittling. Sometimes we need to learn to just take the compliment, right? God did something in and through you. It is okay for you to say, man, that was awesome, and I was grateful to be a part, a part of it. Thank you, and thank God. The false humility of, oh, no, God alone, sola gloria Dios, as we, we go into this big theological meanderings. I mean, to me, it makes me want to gag because now you've just self-aggrandized through your false humility. <laughs> and I get the struggle's real. There are times, however, where God does something in our lives, and it is clearly without exception and without addition, that God has done this. And I would go a step further, that even when we maybe deserve a little bit of credit, a little bit of kudos, that even then it is appropriate to thank God, the God who made you and gave you that gift and allowed you the opportunity. We see in Hezekiah, we see an example of a man who missed the mark. Last week, we see Hezekiah, who's a good man, a good king. And even after this event, he's still considered a good king. But we see a good king who makes a bad decision. We see a good king who forgets his place. We see a follower of God who puts himself in the place of God and accepts God's glory. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38, starting in verse 9. Isaiah 38, starting in verse 9. This is after Hezekiah has just been told by God. Remember last week we talked, for those of you that weren't here, Hezekiah has been told by God, hey, look, buddy, uh, get your affairs in order. Get your stuff together because you're going to die. Like, I know you've been sick and you're not getting better. This is the end game. You're done. Hezekiah turns over, prays, looks at the wall and says, God, don't forget me. God, help me. And God in his grace comes to Hezekiah a second time through Isaiah and says, all right, buddy, appreciate your fervency. I appreciate your prayer. And because you've called out to me, I am going to give you 15 more years. And, he, and God even gives him a sign. Hey, the steps, the sun's going to go back. There's these steps on the backside of the palace. The sun is going to go back several of those steps to show you that I control time, I control space, and I am going to heal you. It's going to verify what I have said to you. And Hezekiah responds to that as God heals him with what we see in verse 9 and following in chapter 38. It says this, a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. It means he's writing this after he's already been made well. I said, in the prime of my life must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years. I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man. Or be with those who now dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn. But like a lion, he broke all my bones. Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or a thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. 
I will walk humbly all my years because this anguish of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health, and you let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all of my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you, as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Isaiah had said, prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil, and he will recover. And Hezekiah had asked, what will be the sign that I will go up to the temple of the Lord? Then everything shifts, chapter 39. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found amongst his treasures. There was nothing in the palace or in all of his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say, and where were they from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, And what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show to them. Then as Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word, the Lord, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. We see a dramatic shift here, don't we? We see a man who is sorrowful, who, who is on, on the doorstep of death, calling out in desperation to God, saying, look, I, I know I have no hope. Uh, you've told me this is in the end, but God, please save me. And Hezekiah does the right thing. After God comes through for him and saves him, Hezekiah begins to praise the Lord. That's something that we need to remember in our own lives. The God who does the saving deserves the praising. The God who does the saving should get the praising. When God does something big in our lives, it is right and proper for us to praise God for it. Now, let me be clear about this. I'm not just talking about us coming in and singing songs and raising our hands. That is too passive. That doesn't really explain what God has done. Sure, like it, 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 it evokes emotions and it is right for us to praise God in song and, and in movement and, and all of these things. But what this is talking about is testifying to the world around us. It specifically mentions in the text to our children, this is what God has done. 
I need you to understand this because we get lost. We make praise and worship and praising God all about songs, which is problematic for a, a multitude of reasons, not the, big, not the least of which is we make it about our personal preference, about the songs that we prefer, about the instruments that we prefer, about the style of dress that we prefer. Those are all secondary, ah, not even secondary. They are utterly inconsequential. What matters is that we are recognizing the greatness and the glory of God. If we are paying attention to the style of the music, the people on the stage, or what they're wearing, and that is the primary deciding factor of whether or not we can worship. Oh, I just can't worship with an organ. I just can't worship with a guitar. Then you can't worship. But Hezekiah, he does what he should do. And he writes a poem to, to memorialize, it's actually considered a psalm, to memorialize what God has done. That this is what God did in my life. And Hezekiah recognizes several things that are important for us, ourselves to recognize throughout this psalm. First thing that he recognizes is that life is fragile and fleeting. And the need for salvation is a standard part of the human experience. Right? Trouble. Like, we, we are going to have trouble. In this world, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Like, guarantee, write it down, promise you. That is a promise from our Lord and Savior. You will have trouble. But don't worry, I give you my peace. Don't worry, I am going to save you. And over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, we see people who are desperate in need of salvation. There, there is not a person in this room who can say throughout the entirety of your life, I've been good, like I, not me, like I've really been good. My life has been perfect. I have not hit any speed bumps. I've not had any issues. I really don't need, I don't need any assistance from anyone. I mean, listen, if that's you, then good for you. But I am a hot, nasty mess, and I need help from everybody early and often, not just the good Lord himself. Life is fleeting and fragile. And Hezekiah reflects upon the fragility of his life and the severity of his illness, the certainty of his untimely end by divine decree. He starts out by saying, look, it was end game. Like it was over for me. God had told me it was done. I was sick unto death, and I was not going to see the Lord anymore in the land of the living. I wasn't going to see my friends and family anymore. No longer was I going to be able to praise him on this plane of existence. It was the end. He uses three illustrations to demonstrate the suddenness of his impending death. The fact is that, that for whatever reason, whatever illness it was that came upon Hezekiah, he didn't expect it. It wasn't like he was planning on it. Which, do we ever? Right? I mean, I, I'd love to, like, bring up some of our doctors here and be like, hey, has anyone, Jason, ever come into your office and been like, hey, man, I was planning on having uh, an issue with my foot three weeks from now, but it came a little early. Can you see me? <laughs> anyone ever come into the ER, Elton, and be like, man, I, I really thought this was going to happen three weeks ago, but here I am today. Like, can we deal with it now? Anyone bring a sick kid to you, Courtney, and be like, hey, my kid got a cold, and I was planning on it, so it's right on time this time. Praise God for good planning. No one does that, right? 
We might, we might know that we have genetic proclivities towards things and that we might know that there's something coming. We might know that we need a, a surgery some point in time down the road. But none of us finds ourselves facing our fragility thinking, I, I planned on that. Right on schedule. Difficulty right when I thought it would come. None of us do. Hezekiah points out, he said, I, I, this came out of nowhere. Like I was living my life, everything was great, and then suddenly, he says, in the prime of my life, the rest of my years were stolen from me. Brothers and sisters, side point, your days are not guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. There is, God doesn't steal years from anyone, God gives years to us. And they are a gift from God. We need to use and enjoy them to the best of our ability while we can. He uses three illustrations, though. The first is the pulling of a tent, down of a tent. And no matter how long you go camping, it always feels like setting up the tent took a lot more work and effort than taking down the tent. I mean, it's one of the ridiculous facts of life, right? You spend all this time, all this effort putting down the tent, putting up the tent, and then it feels like you're in the tent for but a moment, and you take it down, and you're done. And it's like, man, all that work, and that was it? He compares it to that. It's like a shepherd's tent, man. You put all this work putting it up, making it feel like home for a few days, and the next thing you know, it's down on the ground like nothing. Second illustration he uses is is rolling up a woven piece that has been made on the weaver's loom. Now, I've I've never met an artisan who wove, uh, crocheted, knitted, or quilted a piece that felt like it was 100% done before they called it good and moved on to another piece. I remember they had a quilting group when I was in West Virginia, and they would go downstairs and they would quilt, and they had dozens of quilts that were hanging in the room, all that looked perfectly fine to me. And I would ask the ladies about it. I would go down and hang, hang out with them sometimes when they were quilting, and I'm like, hey, this one looks good. Like, is it done? No, we got to fix a few things on that one. I don't think one quilt ever went out of the church. Because there was always something that needed repaired, always something that needed to be done, always some detail that could just make it that much better. The truth is, is I see that with Robin too. Robin will crochet, and I can't tell you, she's working on this thing right now. I think it's supposed to be a blanket. But she started undone and restarted it like 25 times over the course of the summer. I don't got enough yarn for that, so I better start it again. This is the, it's the reality of life. It's never done. It's, it's, it's never exactly what we want it to be, and the truth is for our lives. It's, it's never as long, or, or it's, we've never fulfilled all of our desires or all of our dreams. It's always, don't we always find ourselves wishing we just had a little more time? Just a little more time, just a few more days. One more chance to do this, one more opportunity to do that. Like rolling up a piece of fine art that we've made. Or the passing of a day. Man, I'm, I'm reaching that age where I realize the, the truth of the saying that time flies. Y'all remember when you were a kid, how, how long a day seemed? Like you would go to school and you would get there at 8.15 and you would realize that you don't get out till 3.15 and you thought to yourself, that is an eternity. I remember a period of time where I thought in my, my like first grade mind, that the summer was equal to the length of the school year. In my head, 
I had no concept of time, and days just seemed unspeakably long. An hour to wait an hour? Like, hey, we're going to go to McDonald's. Sweet, when are we going? In an hour. An hour? Oh, my gosh, that's forever. I'm dying. Now, now like, listen, at 43, there's not much that I don't think I could do for an hour. I can endure just about anything for an hour. It's just not that long, is it? Says the passing of a day. Now, at this age, it feels like a day is over before it started. Hezekiah points that out. It's just too fast. I wasn't ready. I wasn't done. There was more I wanted to do. And, and like a moment, like a flash, it was gone. Death, darkness, and difficulty come for us all. The light fades into darkness faster than we expect it. And it's only by God's grace that we are sustained and find one more day. We need to remember that. The fragility of life and the gift of God that it is to each of us, even in our difficulties. But we also have to remember this. When faced with struggle, there is only one place to turn for deliverance. In verse 14, the first part, 14a, Hezekiah compares his cries to help to the calls of three different birds, all birds that are common in that part of the world. They are a swift, a thrush, and a dove. One commentator explains the illustration this way. He says, the varied cries of Palestine's birds express the nature of Hezekiah's many cries to God. Now quiet, a thrush. Now shrill, a swift. Now mournful, a dove. All three are birds, though, that cry in the morning and in the evening. It follows the pattern of what Hezekiah has said. Day and night, I cried to you. Day and night, I was crushed. Now, verse 14 does hit a little funny to me. Especially the, the second half, right? Look at four, verse 14 in the second half of the verse. He says that I cried, I cried to God. But then he says this, I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. Does that hit, hit funny to anyone else? Let me tell you why it hits me funny. Because who has threatened Hezekiah? Who told Hezekiah he's going to die? The Lord, right? Hezekiah's like, look, I'm threatened, and so I cried out to the one who was threatening me. He recognizes the reality. It's a revelation of his impending, his impending death comes from God, that it is God who, who, who controls the beginning and the ending of our days. It is God who holds all things together and helps them move. It's through him we live and move and have our being. And it's to God that we should cry. There is no one else to whom we can appeal for deliverance. But then we see Hezekiah shift to praise. He recognizes his struggle. He recognizes his sorrow. And then he says that, that God heard me. And God responded. And he responds with praise. When God responds to our cries for help and honors his promises to deliver us, we must remember to praise him for his work on our behalf. It is improper for us to receive the good gifts of God and then fail to return praise to God for them. 
And all too often, that is what we do. God does something good, and then we move on with our lives. That's good. We should continue living, but we should stop. Take a moment and remember to point the glory to God, to recognize who it is that has saved us so that others will see him and not just our salvation. So others might call out to him for salvation and not just celebrate the good thing that happened in our lives. The fact is, in Hezekiah's life, the God who declared his death did, in fact, deliver him. Is this not the truth of salvation throughout the entirety of the Bible? That God has declared us guilty because of our sin. And that a good portion of the difficulties of our lives, and in some way, I would say all of the difficulties of our lives, are the result of the stain of sin. And God has declared, right? Isn't that what he said to Adam and Eve? Look, in the moment that you... Touch that fruit, you're going to die. And we have been dying a little every day since. But is it not also God who through his own action and his own sacrifice says, I'm going to make salvation available to you, permanent, complete, and total salvation and deliverance. This is the pattern of God. He pray, Hezekiah praises God and promises to continue to make his name known to, to his children and to families as he goes on in his life. It's so easy for us to cry out to God in the struggle, receive deliverance from his hand, and then move on with our life as if nothing happened. We need to remember to return praise to God when he saves. I had a youth pastor when I was in high school. His name was Dwight Peterson. And I remember one time going to Pastor Peterson and saying, hey, Pastor Peterson, this is a thing that I am facing in my life that's very difficult. Will you pray for me? And then his answer was not what I expected, right? When you go to a pastor and say, hey, will you pray for me? In general, I expect one of two responses. Either they will immediately pray with you or they will say yes, and they will pray for you later. That is not what Pastor Peterson did. Pastor Peterson said, okay, so listen, here is the deal. I will pray for you on this condition. What? Like, I was like, I didn't even know pastors can do that. Like, your prayers can be conditional? Apparently they can. So I was like, all right, what's the condition? He's like, here's my one condition. I am going to write your prayer request down in my journal. And I'm going to put it over here to the side, and I'm going to pray for it every day for a month. At the end of that month, I want you to come back and report to me what God has done in response to that prayer. And if God has not answered that prayer yet, we will continue praying for another month, at which time you will report back to me. But listen, if I'm going to pray for you, I want to be part of praising with you when God moves. Blew my mind. I mean, I won't lie. I was a little insulted, a little offended. But was he not right? And and I I did talk to him about that later in life when when I was studying to be a youth pastor following his example. And I asked him about that, and he said, I just realized how easy it is to get busy with everything else and forget to give God his due. It's easy to take from God what he gives, but forget to return God what he's due. God deserves glory. God deserves praise. And the God who does the saving should get praising. Which brings us to the second half of what we read this morning into chapter 39. Because there's a trap. There's a trap inherent in God moving in miraculous ways in our lives. And we need to be cautious. 
We need to beware the trap of turning what God does for you into an opportunity to glorify you. Beware the trap of turning what God has done for you into an opportunity to glorify you. Is that not exactly what Hezekiah did? The answer is yes. That is exactly what Hezekiah did. When God does amazing things in your life, people will take notice. And in that moment, we have an opportunity to do one of two things. Maybe more, but two primary. We can elevate God and say, "Look, yes, absolutely, this happened in my life and it is amazing. But God did this. I prayed. I asked him and he did it. Like he actually answered my prayer. You know why people think that prayers don't get answered? I think this is part of it, is that, that we fail to ever, ever explain when God actually answers prayer. When God does amazing things in our lives, others will take notice, and we need to point attention to God. Verse 1 of chapter 39 tells us that word of Hezekiah's illness and miraculous recovery, both things, had made their way to Babylon. And not just that, but if we look at 2 Chronicles 32, 31, we, it tells us, as it gives the chronicle of Hezekiah's life, it tells us that not only had the Babylonians heard that Hezekiah was deathly ill and had been healed, but they noticed God's sign, right? Remember, in biblical times, they watched the heavens, right? They watched the stars, and, and, and how did they tell time? Well, they told time through the sun and the, and the sky. And so it tells us in 2 Chronicles that the Babylonians, all these miles north, had seen the sign of the sun moving backwards. And somehow, they'd heard about it and connected what had happened to Hezekiah and what God had done in the sky. And so they come to check it out. Now, we need to be clear about something. The, the Babylonian king did not send his emissaries and his top people to go see Hezekiah out of the goodness of his heart. He wasn't just saying, uh, hey, congratulations, you got well soon card. That was not the intention. What the Babylonian king is doing is they were preparing to mount a rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. The same Assyrian empire that God had told Hezekiah in 38 that he was going to destroy and, and take away the blight of the, the Assyrians on them. King Sennacherib, that, that God was going to take care of them. And here shows up Babylon and they're like, look, we have a common enemy. Your God clearly is powerful, right? Like your God did this amazing thing. And if he can control the sun, then this enemy is nothing. You know what they're doing is they're trying to rally and to try, trying to convince Judah through Hezekiah to join their cause. Hey, join our coalition. Your God clearly is powerful. We could use people like you and gods like yours on our side. Join with us and we'll destroy the Assyrian army together. Now, there are a couple of problems inherent with this. First of all, God had already told Hezekiah, look, I've got this. Hezekiah's family, the kings of Judah, had a bad habit of going and recruiting help from other nations. Hezekiah knew this. Hezekiah should have been, as these, these people come in, what a great opportunity though, right? This clearly is a test. In comes these Babylonian heathens looking for help to overcome their enemy. And Hezekiah has the perfect chance to say, look, I, I did nothing. God did this amazing thing in my life, and my God is great, and he's going to take care of Sennacherib. Thanks, but no thanks. What does Hezekiah do instead? 
Hezekiah is like, hey guys, thanks for coming. I think I'd like to be a part of your team. Let me show you all of my stuff. Let me show you all of my weapons, my armory, my treasury. Like I would be a great partner in what you're doing because you know what? I'm pretty great. I'm pretty great and my God serves me in amazing ways. Now he doesn't explicitly say that, but the overtones are there. Hezekiah loves him some Hezekiah. And he shows these men, these these emissaries, all of the great things about him. It reminds me, and I've, I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again, of when I moved to West Virginia and I went to this church that owned basically two city blocks across the street from each other in, in St. Albans, West Virginia, and God was clearly doing amazing things at their church. And I walked around their sanctuary and their educational facility, and it was state-of-the-art. They did amazing productions, had amazing lights, but still had like this beautiful wood background. And so it still looked classy and traditional, and it was amazing blending of the two things. And they did all of these wonderful performances and had hundreds and thousands of people that would come through their auditorium at Easter and Christmas. And it was amazing. And then you looked across the street, and across the street they had an amazingly huge family life center that had... Not just one, but two full court gyms side by side and a full workout center that you could go to if you were a member of the church and and these meeting rooms where you could hang out. And and it was just this amazingly beautiful facility. And then they bought space because they didn't have space in the buildings. They bought this amazing complex across the street from that and put all of their offices there. And it was incredible. I got to be honest, as I walked around, I was a little bit jealous. And then as we stood in the parking lot, the pastor held out his arms and looked around looked me dead in the eye and said, look at all that I've built. Look at what I've done. Isn't this amazing? And I was like, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe that God strikes people dead with lightning, but I was like. (laughs) You know, I hadn't thought about this till this moment, but a month later, that pastor was pushed out of his position in that very church. An act of God? Maybe. Listen, we we do what we do and we achieve what we achieve in life because of God's good graces. And it's, it's okay, again, for us to accept some compliments and kudos. But listen, remember to return praise to the God who made you capable and able. Remember to praise the good God who is doing the good things in your life. Hezekiah, though, sees the Babylonian visit as the perfect opportunity to demonstrate his own greatness. And rather than directing the attention of of this unbelievable thing that God has done to God, he ignores God's miraculous movement in his life and diverts them to signs of his own power and faith. But then he makes it worse, doesn't he? Did y'all catch the craziness of the last verse in this? God declares, hey, look, because you've done this, know that these very people to whom you've shown all your stuff, they are really not interested in you. They are concerned with your resources. That's what they want. And you've just showed it all to them. So know this, Hezekiah. One day, those very people are going to come and they are going to rob your future generations blind. 
They're going to take it all. And not only that, but they're going to take their ability to reproduce. And some of, your, some of your very children are going to be turned into eunuchs and taken and deported. Future generations are going to bear the burden of your sin. And Hezekiah looks at it and goes, that sounds like a good deal to me. That's exactly what he says. Like Hezekiah's response in verse 8, he says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. That sounds like good news to me. And it tells us why. Because Hezekiah's like, won't be my problem. It won't be my problem. You've got to ask a question. Now, listen to me. Before I say this, this is applicable to the American economy. I understand that, right? So understand that I realize that this applies, but I think it's important in this moment that we apply it to the church. So hear me. I am asking this question of the church. Are we willing to mortgage future generations to maintain our own comfort? Are we willing to mortgage future generations to maintain our own comfort? Are we willing to, like Hezekiah, say, look, it's all good as long as I get what I want in my lifetime? Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes that has been our response as the church. I won't lie to you. I have had someone in my life, in my time as a pastor, where I asked them and said, so you're telling me that if this child, if this student won't act or dress in the way that you think is appropriate, you would rather them not be in the church at all. And they said, that is absolutely what I am saying. Now, before we all start going, oh, that's so horrible, do we in our own attitudes and actions not do the same thing? We prioritize our own preferences and what makes us comfortable and what we like because we pay the bills. And in the process of doing it, we mortgage and sacrifice our ability to influence and help with future generations. Rarely do we bear the burden of our consequences and sinful pride on our own. Hezekiah had flexed as hard as he could to impress the Babylonians. He showed them everything, and in reality, they were just looking for the resources they could take from him. And it was going to bear an incredibly high cost for future generations. And Hezekiah has the gall to say, sounds good to me. Brothers and sisters, willingness to sacrifice future generations on the altar of our own ego and our own preferences is unquestionably idolatry. Hear me again. If we are willing to sacrifice our ability to influence and to teach future generations and to engage them in ministry and praising God, if we are willing to sacrifice that for our own preferences and convenience and comfort, we have placed ourselves on the throne of God. We are our own idol. And I, I, I will argue this till the day I die, that more often than not, our idolatry does not focus on some external God that we are praising, but on ourselves. It's exactly the problem that it was with the devil, right? Like, I am, how am I different than the Most High God? Is that not what Adam and Eve did? Hey, if I eat this apple, I will be like unto God. Our, our idolatry is not always about worshiping some other thing out there. It is about our own selves, in elevating how great we are. Hezekiah's response reveals the truth of his heart. Chapters 39 and 38 stand in stark contrast to one another. 
It is so easy for us to become our own idol, to, to take a seat on the throne of God and just slowly scooch God off. Excuse me, Lord, you're in my seat. And it can be seen in all arenas of life. There's a willingness to mortgage future generations for our current situation. We do see it in our political priorities oftentimes. We see it in our prioritization of our own preferences and comfort in the church. We see it in the allocation of our personal and corporate resources. This is not the life to which God has called us. God has called us to self-sacrifice, not self-service. Which means we should be sacrificing of ourselves for the security of future generations, not accepting, using them as sacrifices to secure ours. This is especially true within the church. There's a paper-thin margin between humble service and worship of our one true God and supplanting him with ourselves. There's a a paper-thin margin between recognizing the part that we play in what God is doing and remembering his greatness. Maintaining hearts that constantly call out to God in prayer and praise are our best line of defense against crossing that line. When we are regularly calling out to God, remembering our deep need for him in every area of our life and in every human heart, when, when we continue to cry out to God and recognize our fragility and, and the, past, the fast passing of our lives and time, we're more prone to remember that salvation is found in God alone. We're more prone to seek to serve him by sharing it with others makes it easier for us to stay in our proverbial lane. Brothers and sisters, God alone is worthy of all the honor and praise for the things that he does in our lives. We are passive recipients. And as a result, we should be active participants in giving him praise. We should be active partners in serving his purposes in the world, sacrificing of ourselves, dying to self, even giving of our very lives as Jesus did in order to see them saved. Opening space in the economy of his kingdom that others might engage and serve with us according to his plan and purpose. Even our greatest accomplishments in life are gifts of God's grace. And we need to see them not as an opportunity to just glorify ourselves, but as opportunities to direct attention to our all-glorious, all-powerful, ever-present Heavenly Father. May we not get it twisted. May we remember who is worthy of all the honor, glory, and praise. May we continue to, to pass that on to future generations and to elevate God even in the public arena, the public sphere. And may our loyalty and our devotion and our recognition of what is happening in the world, be constantly used as an opportunity to to direct people's attention to our great and glorious God, that they too might find salvation in his power and presence in their lives. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, though, that though we fail you time without number, that you continue to be a God who saves us, that even when we forget to give you the glory that you deserve, you graciously still come to our aid and still call us to repentance, giving us chance after chance. God, we pray that you would help us to be a church that serves you selflessly, a church that is willing to sacrifice our resources and and our time and our energy and of our very selves, our comfort, 
our personal preferences in order that we might point all generations and all men, women, and children to you. God, forgive us for times that we've placed ourselves on your throne. May we, like all the saints and angels mentioned in your word, gather around your throne, giving you all the honor and glory and praise. For, Lord, you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.